Welcome to the 3M Inside Angle podcast. This is your host, Gordon Moore. And today I am speaking with Billy Milwee, who is the president and CEO of Milwee and Associates. Welcome, Billy Milwee. Hey, Gordon. Glad to be here. I would like to talk with you about your experience as a Medicaid director and about issues that are important to them and how Medicaid can vary from state to state. But before we get there, tell me a little bit about Milwee and Associates and what you do. I was with the uh, Texas Medicaid program for about 20 years, served as the um, uh, Medicaid director and deputy health and human services commissioner for three years, uh, and was fairly active nationally in Medicaid with the National Association of Medicaid Directors. When I left state service in August of 2012, uh, decided to form a consulting company, and that led to the creation of Millwee and Associates. And basically, we're a group that works with states, companies like 3M, to better understand the the Medicaid marketplace or to help states understand value-based payments or pursue waivers for uh, changes to the program they might want to make and do some mentoring work with uh, new Medicaid directors to help them understand Medicaid. Uh, So I guess I'd describe us as a general Medicaid consulting firm. It's myself and uh, I have uh, one full-time employee and about eight or nine uh, 1099 subcontractors that I work extensively with. You know, and, and that's your background and, and what you work on and your national understanding is exactly what's interesting to me in, in that Medicaid is a big amount of healthcare spending and uh, it varies a lot across the states. And yet there are probably some common themes there as well. And given your work in Texas, as well as your work now around the country, I wonder if you have recognized the kinds of things that are the same and also vary. Well, the kind of work that is the same is really the uh, political attention that Medicaid has received. You know, Medicaid is now about 25% of every state budget. And naturally, it's it's a bit contentious because, you know, in, in one level, uh, some states are fairly progressive and looking for coverage options. Other states, like Texas, have not pursued coverage options. So Medicaid is generally the, the foundation for coverage within any state. Uh, many times the largest insurer. Uh, that's good and that's bad. It's good in that the uh, the benefit is there and able to, to provide care for low-income uh, people. But at the same time, it really puts a lot of pressure on state funding. In fact, in many states, you start seeing where Medicaid funding is crowding out funding for education and other programs. So virtually every program you go into in any state, the spending is top of mind. Uh, for any state Medicaid program and the financing mechanisms are, and Medicaid directors are always under pressure to reduce costs but improve quality or improve access and do all those things. So you're asked to do sometimes what feels to be almost impossible task. Um, control spending, but at the same time, don't affect quality, don't affect access, don't impact the care that we're delivering now. That's a really challenging test. I'm imagining, you know, if you're going to fix a Medicaid budget, either well, we can cover fewer people, we can cover fewer services, uh, we can try to negotiate better prices, or we can somehow try to fix the way healthcare is delivered. That last option is typically the one folks are pursuing, but it's also the most challenging. Exactly. And, you know, going back to the past a bit, the way states used to approach Medicaid in reducing spending, particularly during those years that a state has a real budget problem, uh, was that they would reduce eligibility or they would just do across the board provider rate reductions. And neither of those really worked effectively because you're going to deny people coverage who are going to be off Medicaid. And then when the budget crisis is resolved, the state comes back in and adds those people back in and they come back in sicker than they were 
And, and now there are so many federal requirements that states are really limited in how much they can reduce eligibility by. Uh, and I think we've all seen that just reducing provider rates isn't really effective. It's, it's like, you know, I used to try to explain to our appropriations committees that Medicaid is like this big balloon. And if you squeeze it here, thinking that you're going to save a few pennies, it's going to pop up somewhere else. So if you're trying to reduce one level of service or reimbursement rates in one area, it's just going to create a problem in another area. So the best approach is to look at what you're paying for and how effective is that, and also the incentives that you're creating through your payment models. So let's pivot to what's different across the states and your observations of how states may have to approach this differently because of either local or national issues. Well, you know, what's important, I think, before you go into any state is understanding, believe it or not, the organizational structure, because the responsibilities of a Medicaid director will vary from state to state. And depending on where they are in the organization dictates what their concern of the moment may be. For example, in some states, the Medicaid director is responsible not only for the operations of the Medicaid program, but they may also have responsibility for eligibility for all social programs, as well as responsibility for the Office of Inspector General. So in those cases, you know, they, the crisis de jour for them may, may be the uh, most recent article in the newspaper about a major fraud issue within the Medicaid program. So that changes from state to state to state, what the responsibilities are. In some states, a Medicaid director may have responsibility for the mental health program. In other states, they do not. So it's always helpful to uh, take a look at a specific program and what responsibilities fall within the Medicaid director's purview. Generally, I think that if you look at the, uh, the National Association of Medicaid Directors does a survey every two years to look at one Medicaid director tenure and what are the top issues within Medicaid directors? What are they most concerned about? Uh, one of the major issues that comes up is around tenure. It's increasing. I think the average tenure of a Medicaid director right now is about 20 months. But if you look at a program the size of Medicaid, you really would like to have uh, much more tenured people. I was, I was very fortunate in being able to spend 20 years in the Medicaid program and worked every major division headed up every major division within the program. So by the time I became Medicaid director, I really understood how these things worked. Uh, if you have a Medicaid director who's a political appointee and did not have the benefit of growing up in Medicaid, then you have a whole other set of circumstances that you have to deal with. Medicaid directors are generally looking at value-based payments, alternative payment models, and new approaches to delivery system design. And it's part of that smarter approach to reducing cost of, I think over time people have realized that just reducing eligibility and uh, cutting provider rates isn't the answer, that you really have to look at being smarter in the way you pay for services and in your delivery system design. Uh, also top of mind are systems. You have these uh, legacy Medicaid management information systems that were really designed to process claims, and now what Medicaid programs need is more analytic capability. So you're seeing a lot of a lot of growth in most every Medicaid director. You know, they've, they've looked at systems, they're confused by systems. They just don't want more data. They want to understand the data that they have. And they're trying to make sense out of data that is flowing out of a, a fire hose and really trying to get to usable information that they can use to better manage their program. Let's go back to, for a minute, if you don't mind, to changing the healthcare delivery system. And what levers does a Medicaid director have to affect that kind of change? Well, there are um, a host of waivers, uh, federal waivers that states can get. One is called an 1115 demonstration waiver. 
And that will allow a state to do a lot of innovative things. Other, other waivers allow managed care and probably more universally. Medicaid managed care, capitated Medicaid managed care has been the, the lever most frequently pulled. Now, this started in the mid-90s, and the call was budget certainty, that the uh, managed care plans were really approaching governors and state legislatures with out-of-control Medicaid budgets and saying, well, you know, if you go with the capitated managed care model, you can be certain of a PMPM, and you can project your budgets better. Now, that has evolved a little bit, though, because spending is still growing. The uh, utilization is up in many states, and so now the... the uh, the focus has shifted a little bit toward, well, if we go with managed care, besides budget certainty, we also want to get value. And so that's where the paradigm has shifted over the last few years. And so the, the levers, I think states are looking for more levers now of saying, okay, we bought into this idea that managed care will provide us with budget certainty, but how do we know that we're getting value? And then a, an issue that is, is really getting more and more traction over the past two years are around social determinants of health. I think that is a, as alternative payment models have been uh, really the focus of Medi- Medicaid directors over the past five or six years, now you see this uh, social determinants of health come out and increasing focus on how we can manage that with many states saying, well, we really can't get to reducing costs in the Medicaid program without addressing these other factors that impact health but are beyond the ability of the healthcare system to really resolve, such as housing, transportation, food insecurity. The social determinants is such a hot topic. There's been so much discussion around that. It always makes me a little nervous, though, when I think about healthcare delivery system picking up housing or transportation and potentially making it more costly and expensive, you know, as we tend to do when we start as doctors touching things and, and playing with them. Yeah, that's true. And, and there hasn't really been a good solution other than, you know, what I point people to is, you know, there, there isn't a good solution right now that I've seen on social determinants of health. You can identify them potentially, but really what can you do about them? And I would suggest that when you identify someone who has who's at risk for some of these social determinants, does that not imply a need for greater care management? That if you know you're dealing with a homeless diabetic schizophrenic, maybe identifying them as, as being at risk is the important part. And then doing additional case management, care management and outreach is what is needed other than creation of a, of a whole new system. And there's, there's a host of issues at the federal level uh, that they're going to have to address in the way that funding flows. You could, there's been some talk about social service block grants, and you know the, the whole block grant discussion is a tough one, but blending your Medicaid funding with your housing funding and doing some things like that, that's the only way I think that you could really get into that and do something constructive. Is, does Medicaid then become a housing agency? I don't know, but for now, I think it's important to recognize social determinants play a role, and then what what ability do we have to manage those? And I would suggest that it's using good tools to uh, care manage those people who are at risk, and using the good analytic tools to identify and treat the high utilizers, the small percentage that drive cost. And if we focus on those, then I think we can effectively uh, impact the social determinants as best we can. I think about the complexity of putting budgets together. I guess maybe that's what is you know, sort of a, an eye-opener for 
physicians who might be working in federally qualified healthcare centers, for instance, and, th- and see individuals who are homeless coming back repeatedly to the emergency department. And they think, boy, if I could just get them housing, but then that's in an entirely different budget that has a whole different set of rules and there are various agencies coming together. Is, is that what the uh, 1115 waivers are about? Uh, yes. What the 1115 waivers do is try and look at how they can bridge some of those things and bring funding together. And uh, there are several states that are working on a, a combined kind of waiver that will help address housing. But again, if you're using a, there are resources within the community. And sometimes I think what is underutilized is good care management, not necessarily just medical case management, but social case management. So for instance, let's take the, the provider in the FQHC who has a problem with that schizophrenic diabetic over some housing issues. If that provider had access to a good social uh, work case management person, then they could start linking them up with the resources in the community. Because, you know, so many of these resources are already available in the community. It's just there's not one traffic cop directing this. So you have, you know, the poor provider who's trying to do the best they can in managing the schizophrenic diabetic. And it's not incumbent really on that provider to understand all of the options available through HUD or through the, uh, there are many, many social services out there that vary from community to community. So having a good social work kind of case management model that understands the community and the resources available in that community are incredibly helpful. Uh, we use a tool called Aunt Bertha uh, that allows people to find resources within a community. And Aunt Bertha is a, a product that kind of puts all those things together for a community so that they can address some of the social issues around healthcare. So connecting people with uh, food, connecting people with housing, connecting people with other social supports. So that I think is probably where social determinants can be addressed, but it has to be at the, at the state level in reassessing its care management models to be more broad in their approach, not just medical case management, but social case management. Many states are including provisions in their managed care contracts and it's it's without deliverables or without measures, but requiring the health plan to address SDOH and a uh, little concerning because there really are no performance measures around it, but anxious to see how some of the plans are going to respond to that. Well, I, mean, I think the hypothesis is that, you know, let's say I'm a, I'm a care management organization or I'm a group taking uh, some kind of up and downside risk in Medicaid in a state, then if I get a payment to work on care management for high-risk individuals and I identify those people through social determinant flags, then I should be able to demonstrate reduced hospitalization, ED utilization, uh, and therefore improve overall costs. Hopefully that would be the outcome. Right, yeah. And the debate becomes, do you do that with a single statewide kind of approach or do you require, do you embed that within managed care plans? Uh, and I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, Arizona is looking at a model where they develop a SDOH solution that is managed by the state, and of course the plans would benefit from it. Or do you require each plan to develop its own SDOH model? So that's that's going to be something to watch, uh, and I'm anxious to see what some of the models that are developed look like. Is, is I'm thinking then about that, you know, as I, I put on my provider hat, and I'm thinking here I am as a doctor, I'm working uh, with people who are covered by Medicaid and estate, and I'm trying to be thinking ahead to managing a population to better outcomes. I wonder if the issues for a Medicaid director is to not make it overly complicated, to say, look, there, there's probably lots of inventiveness and things you could do out there. 
what I want to do is set up parameters and boundaries and incentives that reward you for doing a good job with that. But let's not get too nitty gritty with uh, what I mandate from the state. Is that typically how folks like you come at it? Well, you know, you're going to see different approaches. Uh, my approach was and, and remains that if you set the right financial incentives, you'll create the right outcome. You guide people with incentives versus dictating process. Some states are very much process oriented, that they want to dictate and be very prescriptive about what you must do. And that doesn't always work out because if, if you dictate the processes, then in many ways you own the outcome and you limit the innovation and flexibility that a provider can bring to the, to the solution. So I think increasingly, um, you know, there are, there are a set of Medicaid directors nationally that, that I kind of look to as the leaders and ones that are more forward thinking think in those terms about, well, let's, let's talk about setting the right incentives versus dictating a specific process. And I think that is probably the predominant way, although some states do become very prescriptive. And I don't think they generally have a good outcome with that approach. Yeah, I was going to ask, is this a new thing that, and a trend that's swinging one way or the other? And then do you have any insight into which approach tends to demonstrate better outcomes? Mine has, my, my, uh, experience has been if you set the right incentives, then you'll you'll create the outcomes. I mean, I don't want to sound callous, but at the end of the day, if healthcare is a business, I want to get the attention of the C-suite involved in solutioning. And if I put enough money and incentives at it, then I know I'm going to get the attention of the, of the uh, leadership of the health plan involved, and that will influence what happens, the outcomes, if you, if you set the incentives right. For instance, back in the old days when we used, uh, in Texas anyway, we used an innumerable group of HEDIS measures and we had 1% of the premium at risk based on those HEDIS measures, a very small amount, and also some other measures. You really didn't get any attention to that at all from the uh, executive team. Uh, but when we moved to putting 3% of the premium at risk and largely based that on uh, potentially preventable events, well, you got a lot of attention. And you saw things happen in months that had taken, that had either never happened or taken years to address when we use HEDIS measures. So that's what I mean by setting the financial incentive. You're speaking the language, I think, of the, uh, of the health plan, and you're getting the attention of the leadership uh, involved in communicating your priorities. Many times we communicate our priorities in a financial way, and I think that helps to tell the uh, vendor community, these are our priorities and we're willing to put our money in those areas. The 1% to 3%, it sounds like it made a big difference, but it seems like a surprisingly small change. How is that possible? Well, when you look at how a managed care premium is constructed, there are margins built in for profit. And in Texas, the profit margin at that point was 2.5%. So by going to 3%, we were actually putting at risk more than their entire profit for that plan. So that's why you got the attention, is that you started out by saying, uh, the amount that's built into the premium to recognize profit was placed at risk on performance. And the rationale was, if we're paying you to do these things, and the theory being that if a health plan is performing well, then people are not going to the emergency room to receive their primary care. Uh, they, they aren't going to the ER when they don't need to be. They're not being admitted to the hospital when they don't need to be because they're getting good primary care. And when they are admitted to the hospital, they're not being readmitted. And that's kind of a very, very simple definition of a properly functioning health plan. And if they're not performing at that, then to me, they haven't earned their profit. So uh, that was the thinking behind that approach. 
And by doing that, it did get a lot of attention. And you started seeing changes very quickly. Now, the, the first year we did that, we didn't put the health plans at risk. We wanted them to live with the data that they had so that it would be unfair for me to just um, give you this data and immediately start hitting you with a penalty. It's, it's important for you to understand your data and where, where you have opportunities to improve. But then after that is when the uh, incentives and disincentives start kicking in. And a health plan could earn more money. Uh, you know, nothing's better than getting your competitor's penalty as a bonus payment. That's how that process was constructed. When you cross the profit margin threshold, I, I certainly can appreciate how that would capture attention. Did yeah. you have to uh, hire bodyguards at that point? Or how, how, <laughs> how was the reception? Well, um, it was uh, it was not well received, but at the end of the day, uh, it's really hard to argue against quality. You know, you can argue uh, unfair measures, but then you you dispute that by laying out the measures in a way that people can totally understand. If it's clinically accurate and people can see how the how the measure works and understand that they can affect that measure, then they're almost forced to live with it or be really embarrassed by it. And you saw some creative things. In fact, uh, we had a health plan in Houston that really took a deep dive on their data. And they, they looked at their um, hospital admissions, potentially preventable hospital admissions. And those were coming from emergency departments. And a, they did a, um, a gain share agreement with a group of emergency department physicians that largely staffed the ERs that their clients were going to. And lo and behold, they saw a reduction in their potentially preventable uh, hospital admissions. But then they took another step and said, well, wait, why do we have these people going to the emergency department anyway? Uh, they mapped those out on their zip codes and found out that where people lived that were in their plans, there weren't a lot of urgent care centers or after-hours care available. And so they started uh, working with uh, providers in those zip codes to create after-hours clinics, after-hours care. And you actually saw some actual management of the system and the network happening where you had gain sharing agreements or you also had uh, additional payments being made for after-hours care. So the financial incentives worked to create that kind of response that absent those, those measures, I don't think anything would have happened. What was the impact on uh, overall costs? Um, you know, we have done some studies. I don't have those in front of me right now, but we've actually saw the uh, in Texas where we had a reduction uh, in ED visits, preventable hospital admissions and readmissions. And what was really uh, impressive to me now, in, in Texas we have a couple of different models of managed care. One is called Starship, and that's basically your pregnant women and children. And we saw the reductions there. But more importantly, uh, we have a program called Star Plus, and it's our integrated managed long-term services and supports where you put... That's your high utilizers, 25% of the population that uses 70% of the uh, resource. And we saw the reductions there as well. And typically, you know, many people talk about how, well, that's, that's population is more difficult to manage. But uh, when you really started looking at preventable events in that population, you had a host of them. And you wouldn't have thought that, actually, because they should be getting the highest level of service coordination. So what we found was those, those members probably weren't getting the level of service coordination and care management they needed. But when we assign that uh, 3% at risk amount, uh, that certainly improved. That sounds like a pretty good approach. I like that. Yeah, and it gets a little bit better. Right now, uh, in Texas Managed Care, they're developing an algorithm that in managed care, members can choose a health plan, but many don't. 
So maybe 45-50% of people don't choose a health plan, and they're defaulted into a plan. And in some states, they just do this logic that's fair. You know, if there's four health plans and each one gets a member, and that's the way the algorithm works. Well, now they're working on a model that will assign members based on health plan performance, with one of the measures being PPEs. Uh, and if you think about it, a member that doesn't choose a health plan is probably very valuable to a health plan because they're probably non-users. They don't really use the system that much. They're not that engaged with healthcare. They really may not have a PCP that they're really looking for. So uh, that member could be very, very valuable. So now when we, when we not only hold 3% of the premium at risk, now we base new membership assignment based on your performance on uh, a number of measures, including PPEs then it also begins to reinforce performance at that level because you that's a life that's very valuable to a health plan. I can imagine how that would like be a multiplier effect on that. As we move towards the closing, where do you think things are going now? Although that may be too broad, but just uh, in broad stroke, what is, what's the next stage for Medicaid directors? Well, it's, we're at an interesting period. I, I still participate in the National Association of Medicaid Directors, and it's kind of interesting that you've had a, a bunch of the, of the Medicaid directors who have been around a number of years and have influenced things have, have left, and a new generation is coming into play, at, particularly at the uh, NAMD board. And, you know, we were joking with, with them at a meeting uh, in the spring about if they're going to abandon the uh, alternative payment models and delivery system reforms. And, and no, they're not. I think you're going to see more and more emphasis on that. But they're also really, really embracing the whole concept of social determinants of health. So I think you're going to see more emphasis on SDOH, but at the same time, people aren't going to lose their focus on alternative payment models. But I, I, I see the new sexy, bright, shiny object is now going to be SDOH and you know, we need to give that the consideration it needs and, and factor that in. I think that's going to pose an interesting discussion on how we do a risk adjustment, uh, how we can factor that into things like CRGs. But it, it's a discussion that, that we need to start having because that's becoming increasingly important to Medicaid programs and, you know, we need to help them understand it better. Well, Billy Millen, we thank you so much for your time today. You betcha. Glad to, Gordon. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.